Welcome to the China in the World podcast, a series of discussions examining China's foreign policy and shifting engagement with the world. The China in the World podcast is brought to you by Carnegie China and hosted by me, Paul Hanley. Welcome back to Carnegie China's China in the World podcast. For this episode, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Ian Chong, non-resident scholar at Carnegie China and associate professor of political science at the National University of Singapore to discuss the upcoming meeting between U.S. President Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping on the sidelines of APEC in San Francisco. Before I dive into the interview, let me first introduce Ian. As I mentioned, Ian is a non-resident scholar at Carnegie China, where he looks at U.S.-China dynamics in Southeast Asia and the broader Asia-Pacific. At the National University of Singapore, where he works as an associate professor of political science, his research covers the intersection of international and domestic politics, with a focus on the externalities of major power competition, nationalism, regional order, security, contentious politics, and state formation. He writes often and publishes comments uh, widely on U.S.-China relations, security, and order in Northeast Asia and Southeast Asia, cross-strait relations, and Taiwan politics. Ian, thanks for joining the podcast. Really appreciate it. I know uh, I'm talking to you from while you're in Taiwan, and you've got a busy schedule there, so I appreciate you joining. Absolutely. My pleasure. Well, let's jump right in. Uh, and let me start uh, by mentioning the terrific piece that you put out this week, in fact, uh, for Carnegie China, uh, entitled Amid Contending Narratives, a read on U.S. and PRC messaging in Singapore. And in, in the article, you discuss how China and uh, China and the U.S. are trying to gain soft power in Singapore and how Singapore's population is responding to these narratives. This is something you and I have talked about uh, several times over the last few years. Um, and I know you look at very, very closely. In a nutshell, uh, how would you describe the dynamics playing out uh, in domestic narratives in Singapore? So uh, basically, Washington and Beijing are trying to persuade uh, policymakers as well as the public that they have a better case than their rival. Um, I mean, that it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive, but certainly I think there's a preference if there's at least some sympathy uh, for the positions um, that these two major powers are putting across. Uh, in a nutshell, the uh, Beijing position um, emphasizes quite a bit on the uh, what they see as the illegitimacy of U.S. action, um, the provocations uh, that accompanies uh, those sorts of behaviors and statements. And they also make an, an appeal to uh, the sense of, um, uh, for lack of a better term, ethno-nationalism, uh, because about 70% of Singapore's population is ethnic Chinese. Of course, there's no need for, for sort of, um, ethnicity to sort of mean anything for political loyalties, but uh, that's what the CCP, tend, the Chinese Communist Party, tends to emphasize. The U.S. position, um, that they tend to emphasize more on uh, issues such as international law, rules-based order, uh, and the uh, tangible material benefits and stability uh, that U.S. presence has historically brought to the region and promises to continue to bring. So uh, in terms of how the population reacts, I think 
Um, it's quite split. There are people who find this appeal to uh, uh, ethno-nationalism uh, quite attractive. Others who have lingering um, apprehensions about the United States and views the United States as a uh, colonial, imperial uh, type power, uh, they would be skeptical of the U.S. and be persuaded, more persuaded by the PRC position. Those um, on uh, the are others who sort of see and understand the uh, role that U.S. stability has brought and believe that you know a stabilizing, active U.S. role that is moderate and uh, measured is one that will continue to bring prosperity for the region and Singapore with it. Mm. So this contention continues. Fascinating. And, and, and just a follow-up question to that. I mean, is this, you know, these, this competition of, of narratives uh, by the U.S. and China in Singapore, is it something that's quite subtle uh, as a, you know, Singapore national and looking, I mean, you look at this closer maybe than others, but if you're a Singapore citizen, does this come across as a, something subtle or is it, or is it very apparent and very clear that the U.S. and China are competing uh, rhetorically in terms of these narratives? And then secondly, you know, a lot of this is the rhetoric. Uh, a lot of it is what, what is used in messaging or uh, official statements or uh, through media. Um, but obviously, a lot of the opinion is going to be based on U.S. and Chinese actions and specific policies. So, you know, how much of the rhetorical, uh, you know, the narratives that they're putting out, how much impact is that having versus the, you know, the actions that, that each side takes and the policies they undertake? So this is where things, I think, get quite interesting, because actions themselves, uh, they can be read, but essentially what these narratives try to do is to create an interpretation and try to get people to believe and support those interpretations. Uh, for listeners uh, in places that regularly have elections, think about this as election campaigning, right? Your different uh, candidates, if you will, uh, are trying to put forward a messaging that interprets what they are doing and also what their opponents, what their rivals are doing um, in ways that are obviously advantages to themselves. So there's a whole gamut of things. Some of it is quite subtle. Uh, some of it is more in your face. So the um, I think the PRC side, um, th there's far there's far more range. Um, so there's official stuff coming out from official media and official statements uh, from the PRC. Uh, there are efforts to try to get others to help amplify the messaging, uh, whether this is on social media or actually in various uh, local media. The U.S. has a uh, more forthright approach, which uh, tends to be officials and having officials quoted uh, in media, and because. Uh, the U.S. has a very big platform. There, you know, what the U.S. officials tend to say uh, gets uh, quite quite a lot of play uh, in the media. So, the, so how it's done is a bit different. Um, I think if you look at the effects, I think uh, what's quite interesting is the subtlety. Um, I think uh, on on the PRC side is is useful because one of the things that people in Singapore believe, for instance, is that Singapore is dependent. On China economically, that's technically not true. Uh, the PRC is Singapore's largest trading partner in goods, but trading part uh, trading in terms of services is much larger with the U.S., Japan, uh, Europe, 
uh, and foreign direct investment coming into Singapore, people you know give a lot of play to to uh, the you know PRC money coming in through uh, private sources and also the Belt and Road Initiative. But the private sources that's portfolio investment, not direct investment, and the direct investment falls far short of the United States. Um, and but the impression is that China has this outsized role. Hmm. Fascinating. You know, I know that also in the region, uh, there's a lot of attention, of course, paid uh, very close attention paid to what the U.S. and China are doing together. Um, and Absolutely. we have a potentially a big the Chinese side has not officially announced it yet, but a potentially a big meeting between the U.S. president and the Chinese president next week in the United States in San Francisco at the APEC, on the margins of the APEC leaders summit. Um, there's been, you know, some developments as of late in U.S.-China relations with uh, high-level cabinet secretaries from the U.S. visiting China. A number of uh, working groups and official dialogue mechanisms have been about announced between the two sides. There's still, of course, underlying tensions in the relationship. Um, let me just start out in talking about, to get your sense uh, in advance of the meeting between the two presidents, how how do you currently assess the overall relationship between the U.S. and China? So I think uh, between the PRC and the United States, there still is a high degree of mutual um, wariness. Uh, the, they see the other as potentially, um, or in fact, um, maybe even already doing things that are deleterious to the other's interests. Um, notably, uh, PRC General Secretary Xi Jinping has previously described U.S. actions in Asia as trying to contain, uh, encircle, and suppress uh, the PRC, whereas the uh, U.S. sees the, um, officially they, they've stated that they see the, the relationship with the PRC being one uh, that's going to be highly competitive. Uh, but uh, they both also hold out the possibility for some sort of collaboration. And I suppose this frames the uh, Biden-Xi meeting. It frames also the um, the economic dialogue that's been going on. I suppose both sides are trying to find a way to uh, compete, but still manage their ties in ways that don't spiral out of control. I, there's also been some talk, obviously, of the military-to-military discussions that the U.S. has been asking for a long time, uh, including uh, possibly arms control. I think there, again, uh, there's some willingness to at least test and see if there are, way, if there are ways to um, allow the military relationship, the security relationship, to be a little bit more predictable. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think, I think I, I agree with you. I think, and, and in terms of the uh, U.S. approach, I think it's becoming uh, clearer and clearer. I'm not sure how well it's accepted on the Chinese side yet or whether it ultimately will. But I think what the Biden administration is saying is, as you say, the competition will intensify, um, that there's an expectation on the U.S. side, and that the U.S. will continue to push back, uh, confront China on areas where it cannot change China policy, but the U.S. side has determined that it is threatening or undermining U.S. interests or those of its allies. At the same time, what you're seeing now is the other half of the of the perspective, which is if the competition will intensify, we the U.S. and China will necessarily need to intensify their diplomacy and their dialogue 
and perhaps even cooperation in areas where they have mutual interests, because without it, you may have a higher risk that the two sides, the confrontation, confrontation grows stronger and ultimately leads to conflict, which I think neither side want. I think that's what the Biden administration is trying to put forward to the Chinese side. Um, the Chinese side has not accepted that approach yet. Do you think there's been any 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 progress in coming to better understanding of what what each side is trying to achieve in terms of their approach? So um, I agree with you on on the Biden side. I've been thinking about the uh, PRC response, and I think what we're seeing is that. The PRC, in terms of allowing the dialogue to go on, and I think what the Xi Biden meeting will do is to give more momentum, so perhaps the, the scope for the economic dialogue will increase, uh, and then we might see a tacking on of the military side. So essentially, um, I think Beijing uh, recognizes that they want to avoid a uh, uncontrolled confrontation. They want to avoid accidents uh, that escalate uh, in ways that are unmanageable. So. They've come around, actually, in substance to the U.S. talk about wanting some sense of guardrails, right? So you compete within certain boundaries. There are, things, there are areas you don't want to go. We've seen this during the Cold War, for instance, although I think pushing the Cold War analogy may be going a bit too far. But at any rate, um, the PRC seems in substance to have come closer to the U.S. position, but they've not used that language because I think rhetorically they don't want to seem like they are giving in or accepting the U.S. position. Uh, and, you know, they, especially I think they the PRC side doesn't want to seem like they They've been pressured uh, into this um, modification of their role. So they've avoided that kind of language, even though substantively it seems like uh, they're getting there. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. I mean, it may lead, lend some credence to the Politico report that came out yesterday that indicated that during Wang Yi's visit, the foreign minister's visit to the U.S. recently, in preparation for the Chinese president's visit next week, that there was some indication from him that the U.S. side or the Chinese side was thinking more about mill-to-mill, -mill, and there may be a possibility to thaw the mill-to-mill -mill relationship, which had been put on ice after the visit of uh, Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan. Um, and if that's the case, that is a good sign. However, let me ask you this question, because ultimately what I still see in the dialogue is the U.S. pushing for mill-to-mill -mill dialogue, getting back to some of the you know high level engagements between military leaders but also crisis man, uh, crisis prevention and management mechanisms to you know try to avoid um, an accident or if one happens to to manage it and here what i hear on the chinese side is you know we uh, may not be as interested in that because having those kind of mechanisms will uh, they worry um, give more incentive to the U.S. side to continue to do the operations, surveillance, air, air surveillance, naval surveillance, and other you know freedom of navigation exercises and all the rest that the Chinese side doesn't like. Um, and so they're hesitant to engage in that, um, and they really want a conversation at a higher level about you know what each side is doing in the region and what China you know doesn't like that the U.S. side does. But do you think in their growing understanding of the importance of these kind of guardrail mechanisms that that is evolving on the Chinese side? I think it's evolving to the extent that the PRC doesn't want an accident. 
However, um, I've heard the uh, argument that's laid out. I've heard a stronger version of it too, which is um, by agreeing to any mill to mill crisis prevention and management mechanisms, that gives the United States a free pass uh, to undertake what the Chinese call, what the PRC calls, uh, risky behavior uh, that you can uh, fly and operate and sail uh, in what the PRC deems Chinese waters. Uh, and when or if a accident um, happens, then you call it in and uh, the US side calls it in and uh, things go away. That takes risk away from the US side. I don't think that's necessarily a um, accurate uh, depiction, but um, if I believe my Chinese interlocutors are expressing their views in good faith, then um, that really underscores the real um, suspicion of uh, U.S. intentions. So that, that's going to be difficult to manage. And the whole uh, higher level uh, point is to sort of push for some sort of political discussion. But um, I think the political discussion bit um, is going to be difficult to come about, firstly, because the U.S. Um, is in the region, in part, uh, for its presence, obviously, to protect its interests, but also it's in support um, of its allies, but the U.S. itself is not a disputant, so it can't um, negotiate on behalf of uh, the other disputants uh, that that are U.S. allies. So, um, mm -hmm. so, so I think uh, it's that talk seems to be a bit of that continued elbowing around to try to get a little bit of advantage and to <clears throat> perhaps push uh, the, the U.S. back a little bit. Um, but I think. We probably will see more of this uh, to and froing uh, demands and counter demands uh, as the process uh, of, this, of dialogue continues and as competition continues to proceed. Yeah, I, I think this is one of the more important aspects, and I hope there is something that comes out of the meeting between the two presidents. I think our expectations on what and how meaningful it will be, at least initially, need to be realistic. But to get something started on that, of course, you know, and talking about risky behavior and the Chinese view. That the American side is is engaging in that, uh, you know, in its military uh, activities. Of course, the Department of Defense recently disclosed intelligence citing over 200 cases of what they describe as Chinese risky maneuvers conducted by the PLA operators. And you know, if we think about the 2001 EP3 incident, um, you know, if 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 uh, you know one of these maneuvers were to result in some sort of inadvertent collision or accident. It could really have uh, the potential to create a, a pretty significant crisis in, in, in U.S.-China. So I think this is an important area. I'm glad I had a chance to, to get your perspectives on this. One of the you know, other... Me, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, just let me, just let me quickly underscore something, because uh, I think some people have in mind uh, precisely the 2001 EP3 incident and think that, well, you know, the crisis was resolved, nothing big came out of it. Um, but I think uh, that sort of view is perhaps projecting what happened in the past uh, to today. The U.S.-PRC relationship today is not like the U.S.-PRC relationship um, in 2001, where I think there was a lot more mutual trust. Uh, there was more of a willingness to give the other side some benefit of the doubt. Um, and I guess in the EP3 incident, uh, and you would know this very well, uh, the I think everyone was very lucky that uh, we had uh, Ambassador, former Admiral Purr, uh, who actually knew about naval operations, uh, who was in Beijing at that point in time. Uh, and that that's sort of luck, and you can't replicate luck. Um, so to believe that 
you can, we can have an accident today and everyone can walk away relatively unscathed um, with some, I mean, even if there is some loss of life, I think that's unrealistic. There's far more nationalism on the PRC side. There's far more um, wariness uh, of the PRC and perhaps even a view that the PRC is purposely being antagonistic on the US side. So a backing off of both sides as we saw in 2001 is going to be so much more difficult, um, also because of domestic politics. So yeah, I would really ca caution against people overreading the 2001, which I know and I've heard people, people do. I could not agree with you more on that, Ian. I talk about this fairly often. Um, I think you know there was a willingness by the leadership in 2001 to use creative diplomacy to work through the crisis to get to a better place because both sides wanted that. I don't think you'd have that that same approach uh, because of domestic politics and the state of the relationship as it currently stands, the antagonism in the relationship. And the other point is, um, and, I, and I heard Admiral Gary Roughhead, the former chief of naval Oper operations, make this point a while ago. The one thing that we didn't have in 2001 that we would have to contend with today is social media. There was not Absolutely. social media in 2001. And that will, given the levels of nationalism, what we can expect in terms of uh, the commentary on social media and the pressure that'll put on governments is pretty strong. So I agree with you 100%. I think an EP3 crisis today would be the result would be much different and and and, and unfortunately much more damaging to U.S.-China relations. We are getting low on time. I want to get a sense. Um, you know, ASEAN countries have a lot at stake in U.S.-China relations. Uh, if I've learned anything over my last two plus years in Singapore, um, it's 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 this. Um, and you know, Southeast Asian countries watch very closely, as I mentioned, the U.S.-China relationship because it's consequential to them. Um, a lot at stake. The Singapore uh, Prime Minister, uh, Li Shenlong, said recently, you need a meeting to head in the right direction, but you don't expect a meeting to make everything sweetness or light or something. Um, what, in your view, would ASEAN countries see as a successful meeting between the two presidents? So I don't think um, in ASEAN capitals, they would see the meeting itself as necessarily um, uh, signifying anything. Because if you recall from last year's D20 meeting, uh, it appeared that uh, Biden and Xi had a very good conversation. Uh, and then we had the balloon incident happen uh, and, and things got into a bit of a downward spiral. It was controlled, but uh, I suppose what uh, Southeast Asian capitals would be looking out, they would, would prefer that the US and PRC manage the relationship if not get along. Um, they would be looking out to see if there's momentum behind a lot of the economic uh, and political dialogue and if there is some effort to move forward on the military dialogue. So the we talked about actions earlier, the actions that follow on uh, the, the Biden-Xi meeting in the weeks and perhaps months to come. And I think they will also be watching to see how far the PRC side continues to put forward their position. So uh, if you recall, uh, General Li Shangfu, before he disappeared and was removed, had claimed that a lot of this activity was occurring in, in or near uh, PRC waters. But of course, that is a matter of dispute. Um, and I think um, that comes 
those claims, very excessive claims, uh, come uh, put a lot of pressure on Southeast Asian capital. So they, they'd be watching to see if some of that, as a result of the perhaps forward movement in U.S.-China relations, uh, mean to say some of the, the, the PRC is willing to um, at least dial back in, dial back some of the rhetoric and behavior in relation to these very excessive claims. Well, there's a lot at stake, and uh, very much appreciate, Ian, uh, you sharing your perspectives uh, on this upcoming visit, and uh, look forward to continuing to discuss these uh, these issues, and 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 maybe do a, do a recap uh, after the visit to get a sense of how you feel it turned out. But uh, thanks for joining, and please, uh, you know, consider coming back to the China and the World podcast to share your perspectives in the future. Oh, definitely, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Ian. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the China in the World podcast. For more episodes and research, please go to CarnegieChina.org. This episode was produced by Nathaniel Schur. The music was composed by Spencer Barnett.